it's like a league of their own, right? There's no crying in baseball. They would be like, Dina, there's no crying at startups. What the heck are you doing? Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Morol. Today's guest on the show is Dina Kaplan. Dina is the founder of The Path, which teaches meditation for the modern mind. The Path has taught thousands of people to meditate around the world. Before founding The Path, Dina was co-founder and COO of the tech startup Blip. And before Blip, she was an Emmy award-winning TV news reporter for local NBC stations. She worked as an associate producer for MTV News, as well as at the White House as director of research for the Office of the White House Counsel. Dina was named one of Fortune Magazine's most powerful women entrepreneurs and Fast Company's most influential women of Web 2.0. She has taught classes at Columbia and NYU and spoken at TEDx, South by Southwest, the World Economic Forum, among many others. In the conversation, Dina and I cover quite a bit of territory. We talk about the secrets that Dina was hiding when it seemed to the rest of the world like she had it all. We discuss the challenges that she experienced as a female tech founder in a male-dominated tech world, why she decided to leave her job and travel for over two years in Asia, how she came upon the idea of starting the path, three strategies that you can use to overcome the tendency to people please, how you can build more play into your work, and much, much more. Before I play the interview, I invite you to keep in touch with me by signing up for my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian, which lands in your inbox every Thursday morning and shares with you an article that I wrote that week along with uh, recommendations for books, tools, quotes, really anything that helps challenge conventional wisdom and change the way that you view the world. You can sign up for that in one of two ways. You can go to weeklycontrarian.com and drop in your email address, or you can also text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dina Kaplan, and thanks as always for listening. Dina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to chat with you. Yeah, it's so nice to connect with you again. I want to begin with some time travel. Let's go back in time to when you were the co-founder of Blip. At the time, you seemed to have it all. You were an Emmy award-winning television news reporter, you had just been named one of Fortune Magazine's most powerful women entrepreneurs, um, and there were only about 10 for that year. You were on the cover of the New York Times Business Magazine, and you were a role model for women founders in tech everywhere. It looked all really good from the outside, right? Yeah, but you also had a secret. So, so tell us a little bit about Blip and what you were doing for them and, and what your secret was. So in terms of Blip, we were the platform for web shows. You can think about it as an early version of YouTube. So we were the platform for people creating web series. And I was a co-founder. I had four co-founders along with me. They were all guys. I was the only girl co-founder. And I kind of worked my way up through the company. And a few years in, I became COO. So that means chief operating officer. I laugh and tell people I was in charge of all the paperwork, uh, which was true, uh, but basically all the business functions of the company. So I'm running HR and PR and marketing and finance and business development and a bunch of other things. I also essentially became the face of the company unintentionally, but I was one of very few women founders 
in the country at the time. And so I got a lot of opportunities in terms of the Fortune Award and speaking at these amazing conferences all around the world. And really everything from the outside looked awesome. It looked like I was living the entrepreneurial dream. But you're right. I had a secret. The secret that I honestly not only didn't share with my doctor, my parents, my best friend, and my co-founders, but I didn't even really admit to myself is that I was having panic attacks. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but at the height of one, I would feel really dizzy. There would be tingles shooting down through my entire body, and I would feel like I was about to faint in that second. And I lived in absolute terror. We were in New York at the time running the company, and I lived in absolute terror of passing out in the middle of a New York City intersection. And then this is a little vain and macabre, but having a cab roll over me so it wouldn't even look good for the funeral. So this is what I was worried about. So I know it sounds a little funny now, but if you can think about life in New York, you're walking everywhere. And I had to find a way to never be in a situation where I would have to cross the street by myself because I didn't think I could do it. And was this the first time you had panic attacks or had you had them before? Yeah, good question. I'd been super healthy. And by the way, I was really healthy then. I was working out literally every day, eating really healthy. I was doing yoga. So, I mean, I just looked like the picture of health. I'd never had health problems my entire life at all. And I don't even think this had to do with my health. I think this just had to do with a failure on my part. So what was the failure on your part that brought on these panic attacks? So I know you chat with people about failures, and I almost want to laugh and cry as I tell you this, like literally in this moment. I think that what I was failing at was just being me. I did not know at that time, even as the fancy co-founder of a hot startup in New York that was doing really well. And we did so many cool things. We built really a top 50 website with 300 million video views a month. Like everything just looks so great. But I didn't know how to be myself in that role. And I would say I especially didn't know how to be myself as a girl in the role of a tech founder in a very male-dominated company, even my own company, and in a very male-dominated industry, which is the tech industry, which is still that way, but it was much worse at this time. We're talking about 2005, 2006, 2007. There were very few women. And when I looked around, all the successful founders were all guys. And I constantly thought about what would Larry and Sergey do? What would Peter Thiel from PayPal do? What would Jeff Bezos do? And so I tried to just pattern my behavior on some imaginary way because I knew these guys, but not well. I didn't know like in every situation how Sergey or Larry would respond. I just tried to guess how they would respond. And I tried to do that. And in the end, I completely lost myself. So there were no female role models for you to look up to, and, and you felt the need to essentially hide your identity in a way and put up this, this front. So how did you deal with that when you were having conversations, when you were uh, doing PR and marketing, as you said before, for Blip? Were you suppressing who you were and putting forth a different identity of someone uh, you thought you should be? Yeah, I mean, there's layers and layers to this. And I should probably back up and tell you why this was happening. And the real why takes you back even further in time to little me as a nine-year-old kid. That's kind of geeky, but 
ambitious little kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at summer camp. And my parents sent me to kind of a fancy summer camp one summer. And I was way in over my head. There were these pretty cosmopolitan kids from scary sounding places like New York City and even Boston or L.A. And I'm this geeky kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the girls in my bunk even didn't handle it well. uh, And they ended up bullying me. I became that girl that everyone bonded over as being the unpopular one. I mean, we've all seen this happen at high school, unfortunately. And there wasn't even really this term for bullying back then. So it happened to me. And I definitely felt like I'm the only kid that this has ever happened to. But it was awful. The girls did terrible things. My only friend was my little Snoopy doll, my little stuffed Snoopy. He was so cute. And one day I came in from soccer practice and I'm wildly looking around for my only friend, my little Snoopy doll. And he was not on his little happy perch on my bed. In the bunk, they'd hung him from the rafters like in a noose. (laughs) Just like so mean. And so many other things. And basically at the end of this summer, I made a vow to myself and I said, I never want to be the reject again. For the rest of my life, I'm going to hone my social skills so finely that I will always be popular. And then I did. And I did this by studying the behaviors, the gestures, the actions of anyone that people gravitated to. So if I found a popular person, I would study them. I would see how often they spoke and what the tone of their voice was and just how they were interacting with other people. And then I tried to mimic that. So at a very, very young age, I basically told myself I'm not I'm not cool enough and I'm not good enough as me. I'm going to risk what happened in summer camp happening again. So let me put on the airs and try to just mimic everything about people that are popular. And the scary thing is, is that I did that. And it kind of worked. I did well in high school. I was popular in college. And then I went to work at a few jobs. And I always made a ton of friends. And I didn't talk too much. And I was a good listener. And I you know, learned all these tricks of how to be, quote, unquote, liked and pleasing and popular. But the thing is, this really doesn't scale as a startup scales. And it super doesn't scale if you're in charge. If you're one of the bosses of a company and you need to give negative feedback to someone, but you can't because you've trained yourself for so many years to try to be pleasing to everyone around you. It's like this cognitive dissonance between how you're feeling and what you need to say and all you know about how to act towards people. And so to bring this up to date in terms of your question, all I knew was how to mimic behavior. And I thought, okay, I'm in this role of tech founder. And as you said, there were really almost no women founders for me to look up to. There was Katerina Fake from Flickr, but she was in Canada and I didn't know her very well. Uh, So I really did look up to the guys in the US who I knew a little bit who had done really, really well and was constantly thinking like, what would they do? And I'll tell you in terms of doing PR, it came up less. I'd been a TV reporter at that time. So I was really comfortable doing that. It was just within my own company. I didn't know how to speak up for myself. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to say, like, I'm working too hard. I need a team because I didn't want to rock the boat. I just wanted everyone, even my co-founders, even the people working for me, to like me. And that just really didn't scale. I wonder if the um, the issue you mentioned about mimicking behavior of, of other people, um, so you connected to this horrible experience that you had as a nine-year-old kid in summer camp, the, the bullying um, what role, if any, did like media um, and social media play? I don't know how popular social media was at the time, but and, and the reason why I'm asking this is 
you know, media tends to feature the really successful stories. And there's a tendency to get people to follow the path of, you know, Google's founders or follow the path of Steve Jobs and do exactly what they did. That that's the secret sauce to to success. And then, of course, the problem has been exacerbated with social media as well. People put their best foot forward. So I wonder to what extent that played a role in this this desire, if if at all, to mimic behavior. I mean, I could say that it did, but if we're honest with ourselves, most of the most successful tech founders are guys. That's right. just the truth. So the media reports on that, and honestly, it's pretty accurate. So I think the bigger issue was, in this case, just me not having the confidence to be myself. And yes, it stems from what happened in summer camp all those years ago, but I I carried that insecurity with me for better or for worse. I mean, I don't think I'm the only one that has this. There's a whole theory around imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to it. But I will tell you how it would manifest because you asked about that. So, for example, if we don't close funding on a day, we want to close funding to pay the payroll of our staff, which is really important. Or we don't close that distribution deal to distribute our videos to Google or Verizon or NBC or any of the partners that we had. You know, you have a deal that you want to close that doesn't close. This happens at startups. And when it would happen to me, my instant reaction, and maybe this is being a girl and maybe it's just being me, but was to cry. And I think that's common. Like, I think little girls are allowed to cry and maybe to some extent, little boys a little bit less. So I don't want to have gender stereotypes uh, too much, but I think there's a bit of truth to that. So I would cry and my co-founders would look at me and flip out. They're like, what are you doing? And this is a media thing, I guess. They would say it's like a league of their own, right? There's no crying in baseball. They would be like, Dina, there's no crying at startups. What the heck are you doing? So I just learned like, okay, I can't cry. I can't cry. So let me watch the guys. How do they react when they're angry or frustrated or upset? Do you know what they would do? They would slam their fists into a table, right? And make that very loud, but somewhat probably satisfying to a dude sound of like a fist slamming into a table. Or they would walk out and slam a door. I'm like, okay, they're doing this. I could try to do that, but that's going to look really weird. Like if I start slamming my palm into the desk, that's going to look very out of character. So that's not going to work. So basically, instead, I just did nothing. I actually had the thing where I would dig, you know, I've never shared this before. I would dig my fingernails into my hand, which is really, really painful. Like you dig your fingernails into your palm. I would dig them in and I would think that, okay, this pain is going to be a distraction from whatever pain I'm feeling about not closing the round of funding or whatever it was. And I'm just going to distract myself and I'm not going to cry. And in fact, I'm not going to show anger. I'm not going to show I'm upset. And over time, and this is really what I think was the insidious thing that led to the panic attacks, is I just stopped showing emotion. And by doing so, I really just stopped being myself. I literally failed to be me. And did you talk to anyone about what you were going through? I mean, I, I know you mentioned you didn't have any you didn't really have any female role models in in tech, but did you talk to your friends or your parents or a therapist about about the panic attacks? I mean, I'm super close with my family. I didn't tell them. Super close with my best friend who stole my best friend and I didn't tell her. Didn't tell my co-founders. I didn't tell anyone, but I didn't even admit the problem really to myself. I mean, in terms of the manifestation, which was the panic attacks, in terms of the emotions, I just, this was all subconscious. So now I teach meditation, I practice mindfulness, I'm pretty aware. At the time, this was all just patterns that I wove into the fabric of my personality. So I wasn't realizing I was doing this. It was just what I was doing to fit in and 
not cause any problems and not look weird by crying or being upset. So I just did all that to fit in. The manifestation of this was an issue. I, for two years while running this company, I'm in the press every single day. I'm speaking at all these fancy events uh, in New York and around the world. Do you know that I could not cross a street by myself for two years and I could not take the subway and I didn't tell anyone. How'd you get around? So I came up, you know, as a good COO, I was good at my job, figured out my job at least, and I just solved the problem. So what I did on a startup salary is take a taxi literally every single place that I went for two years. And we hadn't taken money off the table, which is something a lot of founders do. We basically, we hadn't paid ourselves any extra money from any rounds of funding we had raised. So I'm just living on this. I mean, not terrible, but not super high startup salary. And I'm afraid to do the math. Probably a fifth of my salary went towards taxi cabs. And by the way, my walk to work, if I had done it on my own, would have been a beautiful 12-minute walk from the West Village through Washington Square Park to Soho. I mean, it's a dream of a walk, but I didn't do it once in two years because I couldn't cross the street. Uh, So I just solved that problem. And then I would just arrange it to meet up with people after work. And of course, I was this cool girl in tech in the press every single day. So I was not wanting for friends or people to hang out with. And so I would always find someone to go to events with me and then to just make sure that I would get home okay so that I could walk in my door and not having to cross the street. And at what point... Did you admit to your, because I think what you said is is so true and in, in, in so much of the emotional distress that we experience is we don't admit it to ourselves and therefore we don't share it with other people. So at what point did you admit to yourself that having these panic attacks was not okay, that not being able to cross the street or take the subway or walk 12 minutes to work was not okay? I mean, it's so crazy. I remember once my mom came to visit me and We were at my apartment in the West Village, and she said, hey, I'm going to do some shopping in Soho, uh, and I'll meet back up with you in a few hours. And so I just looked at her and said, well, how are you going to get there? And she said, Dita, it's a a 12-minute walk. I'm going to walk to Soho. And I remember looking at her, and she didn't see it. Uh, We've actually never spoken about this, so maybe she'll hear this on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I, I had tears in my eyes. And I actually wondered, I'm almost crying retelling this story uh, to you right now. I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if I'll ever have the confidence to do that walk by myself for the rest of my life. But I didn't think I would. And I also, just to pinpoint how dire this was, I got brought to Italy. This was not a bad gig, but I got brought uh, on this tour around Italy by the State Department to try to foster entrepreneurship in some cities around Italy. And we only had one afternoon off, but I remember I got an ice cream at my favorite place in Florence. And I had my ice cream cone and I had a panic attack. And I do remember that I couldn't get back to my hotel. It was maybe a five minute walk away, but I had to cross a bunch of intersections to get there. So I remember I sat on a curb and just didn't move for hours. I went from three o'clock in the afternoon to I think eight o'clock. And I finally found someone that I didn't know to just agree to walk me back to the hotel. And that that should have been a sign that there was a problem, but I didn't even, I didn't, even at that point I knew that there really was an issue and that this was going to be a hard way to live my life for the rest of my life, not being able to cross the street on my own. But it really took until one moment. And I mean, I remember when this was. I remember the date. It was November 2011. And I remember I was standing at the corner of Broom Street and Lafayette. So I'm just two intersections away from my office. I just had to walk across an intersection to the south, an intersection to the east. And I would have been at our office. And I could see our office door. But I remember leaning against a utility pole and just praying that the light wouldn't turn green because I knew I wasn't going to make it across the street on my own. And then I realized 
there really is a problem. Wow. And what did you do? So it's funny, that moment changed my entire life. I have chills rushing through me, not a panic attack, but it's like I have tingles rushing through me as I share this story with you and your community. It's funny. It's like something just snapped in me. And this voice came to me. It's like the voice of intuition. So maybe some people can relate to this. But this voice just came to me that said, you've got to get out of here. You need to lead the exact opposite life in the exact opposite part of the world. And you've got to do this right now. And in that moment, I just knew that I needed to leave every single element of my life behind and do something completely different. It's interesting that you mentioned intuition. So up until this point, had intuition played a role in your life at all? Or were you primarily a, you know, a rational thinker that would shun hunch and intuition aside? It's a great question. That's a very, very thoughtful question. So my intuition did come to me so strongly at key moments throughout my entire life. In fact, when I was a little kid, I met Bill Clinton and I remember telling my parents, I just met him for a couple minutes at a conference and I said, mom, dad, that guy's going to be president someday. And they said, oh, little Dina, he's governor of Arkansas. No one in the United States even knows that Arkansas is a state in the United (laughs) States. He's definitely not going to be elected. And I said, I'm going to write something down. I'm going to date it. I'm going to sign my name to it. And you guys are going to know that one day this man is going to run for president and he's going to win and you're going to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And it spoke to me a few other times. I should have invested. I mean, I think I was like 12 years old when, when these later things were happening. I walked into my first Starbucks And I turned to whoever I was with and I said, I don't really know anything about business or what a public or private company is, but this company is going to do really, really, really well. And they're going to be this, there's this brand, I think it's called Starbucks. It's going to be everywhere. I did the same with Snapple. So I've always been someone that's had really, really, really strong intuition, but at very discreet moments in my life. So in this case, your intuition told you to leave, to go as far away from where you were as possible. So where did that lead you to? So... It was like I couldn't not follow it. It was like that time with the Bill Clinton thing where I'm like, I just know that this is the case. This was not like, oh, maybe I follow this. Maybe I don't. This is like, it felt like, I mean, I don't want to, maybe it sounds a little silly, but I always felt like the voice of God or whatever you consider the voice of God being intuition, religion, whatever it is. It was just someone was directly speaking to my heart and saying, you've got to get out of here. So I that weekend went to see my parents. I said, would you support me if I leave the company? And they just blankly looked at me and said, do you have anything else in your life? And I said, it's time to find out. And I did a transition with the board. So I did everything responsibly, but I left the company. Now understand I'd raised a gazillion rounds of funding for this company. I'm deeply involved in operations. I'm the face of the company. And I left everything behind. I booked a one-way flight to Bali with a little bit of a wink and a nod at the absolute cliche of that. And I got on a flight six days later. So this sounds like your the beginning of your eat, pray, love story, perhaps. So w- what happens when you get to Bali? So this is an unusual decision for someone that can't walk across the street, right? Because now I'm in a foreign country where I can't walk across the street. But I did have a layover of a few days in Singapore. And I do remember holding onto the side of buildings as I was trying to get around. But I found people to meet up with me. Uh, Singapore is kind of connected to the startup community in the U.S. So I found a bunch of people to hang out with. And they'd have them meet me at the hotel. And I made my way through Singapore. And then... Slowly, I made my way around the world and I started in Bali in terms of the real trip. I went to Sri Lanka from there, Cambodia, Thailand. So the pivotal moment 
of this trip happened about six months in. I had been to Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Thailand, Bhutan, Myanmar. I'd been to a lot of places. But one day I land in India. And it so happened that there was a good-looking fellow traveler walking off the plane at the same time as me. I think he was from Denmark or Norway. And he said, what are your plans? And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea. I'm actually a little bit afraid to be in India by myself. And he said, oh, I'm actually going on a retreat. Do you want to come? So I think this is a date. It turns out this is the worst date of all time. So I say yes. And he ends up taking me to a 12-day gender-segregated silent meditation retreat with no <laughs> and no toilet paper and it's 110 degrees and there's no air conditioning. So truly, this is not the best date of all time. <laughs> but this retreat ended up changing my life about eight days in. So all we're doing, by the way, is meditating 10 hours a day. You're meditating, you're eating, and you're sleeping, and that's it. You're not allowed to do anything else. You're not even allowed to do yoga. So on day eight, I am 87 hours into meditating. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, which is a lot for a girl that thought she was coming on a uh, date with a cute guy uh, from Denmark or Norway. Uh, but 87 hours into meditating, that memory of me as a little kid at summer camp that I'd never thought about in my adult life came to me. It was like a string from Dumbledore's Pond Sieve or something. And I remembered that vow that I had taken as a little girl to never be the reject again. And I realized for the first time again in my adult life that I'd optimized my entire life to be popular. And it was like I could see the jigsaw puzzle of my personality. I could see that piece that I'd put in called popularity. And I had the bandwidth. My brain was pretty powerful uh, on the eighth day of this retreat, I had the ability to just take that piece out. And I saw that I could put in a new piece, which was just being myself, I guess you might call it authenticity. And the minute that I decided to put that piece in, it was like this flash of light shot from my feet, through my legs, through my torso and exploded over my head. And another voice came to me, that voice of intuition again. And it said, you're going to come out of this retreat a better person. And everyone should have the chance to experience this. But it doesn't need to be this hard with the no soap, the no toilet paper, the whole (laughs) difficult conditions. And this voice came to me that said, when you're ready to come back to the United States, you're going to start a company. You're going to make it fun and dare we say sexy, but just easy to meditate. And you'll call the company the path. And at that moment, I opened my eyes. I'm now surrounded by 200, almost all Indian people in this meditation retreat. I had no one to share this insight with because everyone was in silence. But in that moment, I knew that my life mission was essentially to save my former self. So you had left being the co-founder of a tech company to then find yourself back to being a founder again with the path. So how is your approach to being an entrepreneur, a founder different this time around? Yeah, that's very insightful that you realize that. By the way, the whole time I was traveling, I said the one thing I'll never do is run a company again. Never ever. <laughs> anything. Like, I'll go back Famous to the reporter. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'll be a writer, <laughs> maybe pottery, but just anything but run a company. And you're right. Somehow, right now, four years later, I have launched the path and I am running a company again, but in a very different way. I would say I'm really, really good at being me now, like to a fault. <laughs> so... I'm much funnier now, or at least try to be. I'm sort of like a naked gun film, like keep trying, keep trying. And like maybe 20% of the jokes are funny, but but I have the confidence to try to be funny, which actually I'm really proud of <laughs> that my team mostly appreciates. I have no problem giving negative feedback. I just, I'm myself. So I'm relaxed. 
I asked for help. I asked for help from our investors, people above me. I asked for help from my team, people working for me, from colleagues. I'm really brutally honest about everything. Like, hey, guys, I'm really good at X or, hey, I'm really bad at Y and I need help. I don't know how to do this. And what's great is that it means that your team is a lot more loyal to you. But actually, maybe even better than that as I'm sitting here thinking about this and talking to you, I just think it's easier to be yourself and I'm a better leader for it. And if you could go back in time and talk to your former self, the self who was you know, leaning against the utility pole and, and hoping that the light would not turn green, what would you tell them? Uh, and I'm asking this question because I'm sure a lot of the listeners of the show also find themselves, at least from time to time in their lives, in the same position that that you've been in. I mean, I'm in myself. I'm an. I call myself a recovering people pleaser. I still oh. have to fight the tendency. Oh, absolutely. I still have to fight the tendency <laughs> to please to please the other person. I'm actually looking at a book on my shelf right now, uh, which I found to be really helpful. But it's called the the disease to please. Um, we'll, we'll put that in the in the show notes. Great book. So what advice would you give to someone who does have the disease to please? So short of traveling the world for two and a half years and, and spending time in silent meditation retreats, what can they do to claim their authenticity? I think it's a practice. Like you say, I called the company the path. Well, I call it the path because it came to me on that intuition. So by the way, what a pain of a domain to have to get. It took me a year to get that domain, but I'm like, it has to be this. <laughs> That's, what my- <laughs> That's what the voice told me. Uh, So it's called the path because it's a path like you might one day wake up and be enlightened, but unlikely in the modern era, especially if you're leaning in on your career. So just as your meditation practice and my meditation practice is a path, I think practicing being yourself is a path too. I actually have a theory on this, which is that, I mean, in the end, I think we all want to be happy, right? Or maybe it's successful, but you want to be successful because that makes you happy. I think one of the keys for happiness is just to ask for what you want. And I think if you get into that habit, which is maybe a really, really good habit to start with, ask for what you want, ask for what you want. It's really hard. I know people that won't ask to go to the bathroom in a meeting because they don't want to have that look uncool or what if the other person's in a rush so that might be a really small and silly example but if you can continually remind yourself to ask for what you want I think that's a beautiful way to start practicing being you also for you to build up the confidence to know that you are worthy of getting what you want because by the way whether it's work or your personal life people want you to be happy they do so a lot of times when you ask for what you want you'll get it but the other people around you aren't going to guess that So you have to build up that confidence to know I'm worthy of getting what I want. I'm worthy of asking for it. So I think that's a great way. I do think meditation helps a lot, even if it's just one minute. If you're a parent, (laughs) some fathers that I know, that's really hard when you're a father, if you're working to find time to meditate. So maybe they'll put the toilet seat down in a in a toilet and like sit on that and meditate for a minute. And that's the only meditation they get all day. But if that's all you have time for, that's fine. If you can do five minutes or 20 minutes a day, I think meditation helps you tap into that intuition to get you to at least know what you want. And as silly as it sounds, if you can spend a little more time in nature, I think that helps a lot. It's funny. I had this huge moment on the trip. Oh my gosh, I've never shared this. This is going to sound really cheesy. So bear with me, but I was actually reading the fountainhead. (laughs) (laughs) which is an amazing book all about the importance of being yourself, asking for what you want, holding true to your values, really living your life as you. And I looked up and I was actually in Capri. It's a beautiful island uh, off of Italy. And there were all these birds flying. And I had this moment of realizing like birds aren't trying to 
be someone or something that they're not. They just do their thing and they fly where they want to fly. Uh, why we as people live so much in the should of like, here's what I should say. Like, I should be more like Larry or Sergey uh, rather than just being ourselves. I don't know. I guess that's a something in the human consciousness that makes us that way. But if you can spend more time in nature, I think that makes it easier. And then I would also say build play into your life, even every day if you can. Like if I'm really stressed at work, I'll try to run out and go to a gallery or a museum and I might look at one painting. But that's so fun for me. That's so inspiring and playful and living your life as you want to live it. And I find if you do that, like treat yourself to these like minutes of fun things, like go look at flowers or whatever it is that pleases you. If you go do that, it starts to build up this practice of saying, I deserve to have fun during my day. I deserve to be happy. And then that can help you start asking for what you want from all the people in your life. That's such great advice. I'm actually finding myself doing this i'm writing in in the middle of writing a book and uh, when the writing gets tough the thing that pushes me forward it usually is trying to sneak in like something for myself into whatever thing i'm working on so like if i'm working on a subsection that's proving to be hard to write i'll incorporate what i think is a clever phrase or a joke that only i will get or like part of a song lyric or, or something for myself it's sort of like you leaving work to to look at a painting in a museum and that to me just changes the complete dynamic it it, it goes from being this thing i don't want to do to me being playful with my writing I love that. Yeah, I think about this all the time. There's no prize for suffering at the end of our life. It's not like <laughs> suffered. You've suffered a lot. You never asked for what you want. You never wrote a clever phrase. You never went to a museum or did whatever's fun and playful for you. And then at the end of your life, you're given a prize. You win. No. So let's have fun. I mean, it's funny. If you look at animals in their natural environment, they're often playing. Like you see polar bears with some little bouncy ball or like rolling around in something. Like we're meant to have fun. And so I think the more we can find uh, even discrete moments, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it is, put it, even if you're still sitting at your desk writing, but you're putting in something that makes you smile, the more we can do that, the more we build up to the fact that, yeah, we're meant to be happy. So find a way to live your life in a happy way. And live the way you want to live. It's just, we, we need to get out of this mindset that there's some prize for spending all of our time working or, quote, being productive. I was reading somewhere recently that animals play too, of course. And, uh, and the smarter the animal is, the more they play. Don't quote me on this. I read it somewhere. I'll try to dig it up and put it into the show notes. But dolphins, for example, play quite a bit. Dogs play quite a bit, of course. My dog loves playing fetch, loves playing tug of war. And he is a, to me at least, he's a constant reminder of like the really important things in life, which is eating, sleeping, and playing. That's it. Everything else is bullshit. Everything else is bullshit. Like those are the important things. No, exactly. No, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, we're animals, right? We're the homo sapien animals. So yes, we want to lean in on our careers and we want to have impact and we want to leave the world better than it was when when we arrived here. So all that is great. I'm not saying go and like play fetch all day with your dog. Uh, But you can have fun while you're working and while you're having impact. And I think that, by the way, you get a lot better at work if you do that. I, in my role at Blip, I lost perspective. And so I was gunning. I mean, I was working really, really hard. I was working crazy hours, checking all the items off my to-do list. But 
I think I had lost some of my strategic thinking because I was just working too hard. And when you lose perspective, you might be running really fast, but you might be running in the wrong direction. And what role does meditation play in all of this? And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the path as well, because one of the things you do there is to teach ancient meditation techniques in a, in a modern way. So tell us more, please, about the path and, uh, and how meditation fits into the story. Yeah, I mean, I am really committed now to saving my former self. I really want no one to go through what I went through as a super stressed out tech founder and also feeling really alone, even though I didn't realize I was feeling that. I did. I thought I was the only one that felt this stressed. And so I did found the company 100% true to the vision that came to me in that crazy ashram in 110 degree heat with no air conditioning. And we now, as the path, reach a lot of people with impact, which I love. So we welcome everyone. um, But I'm really, really comfortable teaching tech founders, investors, people who are writing books like yourself, and creatives who are running film sets or TV sets, like people that are really having impact in the world. Because I think if we can get people to meditate and have it be fun and relatively easy, then these people are all going to be more mindful in their interactions and help spread mindfulness through their professional and personal circles as well. So that feels really good. And right now we do four things. We do weekly meditations in New York. So if any of your community Community, uh, is in New York. We welcome you to join us. Um, they're all at thepath.com. And those are really fun. It's a lot of tech founders and investors and people in creative fields. So it's really fun to meet everyone before and after the formal meditation part. Um, so we do that on Tuesday nights. We have a teacher training program that warms my heart. So we now train and certify people to teach meditation, which is amazing because then these people will go out and teach um, hundreds, if not thousands of other people around the world meditation. So that feels great. I am really blessed and I get invited to speak at and guide meditations literally around the world. This morning I was trying to count the countries. I was trying to think about all the countries that I've taught meditation in this year and I'm not sure I'm even close to getting there. Um, but that's that's really fun for me and not just fun, it's really rewarding. It's, it's exactly my mission, which is to help people with impact uh, be more mindful and not not face the stress and the panic attacks and everything that I faced a few years ago. And then the fourth thing that we do is called Mela, and it also just warms my heart. I feel like as I talk to you, like 100 butterflies <laughs> are unleashing in terms of the energy coming out of me right now because we bring in people who are really impactful, whether it's uh, startup founders, investors, people in film, TV, music, authors, nonprofits, and politics. So we bring people together and then we put them on a real retreat. Uh, So we sell it as being like really fun and you'll meet great people and it's social and we do it in beautiful environments. Kind of the opposite of that place I went to in India with no soap and toilet paper. We have soap and toilet paper and it's very, very nice. But then we actually bring people on a real retreat and I think it's probably fair to say it it changes the life of every single person that joins us. And what's the the date and location of the next retreat? Oh, so the next one, which we are working fast and furious on right now, is February 21 to 24. And it's going to be in Mexico. So people can kind of think to themselves like, oh, I'm going on vacation. It'll be warm. So it'll be warm. It'll be beautiful. We have amazing, amazing, amazing people coming. But you will come away and feel incredible. The theme is actually relevant to what we've been talking about today is insight. So we're going to help everyone just tap into that natural insight that we all have. We just quiet the noise in our minds down. Uh, And as you can see, my own insight completely changed my life. 
truly between us, I think I think it saved me. That moment on that corner when that voice came to me that said I had to get out of there, I think saved me from what could have been a lot of physical problems ahead if I hadn't listened to it. So I just, I really feel passionately that I want to help people tap into their natural insight because there's so much wisdom there. Dina, you're an inspiration. Thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your story and, and, and such great advice to those in the community who find themselves in a similar position as you. Um, we'll put everything you mentioned into the the show notes, but I do want to give you one final opportunity to leave the audience with any parting words on failure or really anything, any anecdotes that we should have covered but didn't, really anything that that should have been said but was not said. Oh, thanks, Ozan. I would say that we have the capacity to change. I think it's really tempting or easy to think that our personalities are fixed and the way that we are is the way that we will be. But my life has changed dramatically. I would say my personality has changed dramatically. And it wasn't easy. I'm not going to say that it's easy. And it did take a lot of meditation and a ton of retreats, <laughs> of varying degrees of air conditioning offered uh, and paper uh, <laughs> and soap. But we really do have the capacity to change. So if there's anything that you're unhappy about in yourself, or in your life. We live once, at least in this body, right? And so I just want to inspire people to ask for what they want, go after what they want. And I had this whole thing in the back of my mind saying, you're not good enough. Like I'm not good enough to deserve more help at Blip so that I was working nonstop. I wasn't good enough to tell people that I was scared I didn't deserve to be where I was and that I wasn't quite sure how to manage the PL when I was first handed that. So you have the ability to change things and build up the confidence to ask for what you want and go after go after whatever you want I had the inspiration in India to start a company in meditation I really knew almost nothing about meditation but I knew that was my life mission and so I went around the world and studied it and I practice meditation every day and I I feel a hundred percent aligned right now like I am doing exactly what I'm meant to do Uh, and part of my role is to help people find what they want to do, and then give themselves the confidence to go after it. So if there's anything I can help with, uh, I can maybe put in a way for people to contact me. Um, I do hope this podcast is inspiring for people. You're inspiring too. We have an amazing capacity for happiness and laughter and joy and getting out of bad situations. So if you're in a bad situation, I would say get after it and follow whatever your dreams are. Thank you so much for joining us, Dina. Thank you, Ozan. It's a pleasure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.